I'm going to try to project, but Charles Spurgeon, I am not. So I'm glad we're not in a bigger room, but I will try to project out my voice as best as I can this morning. Thanks to our AV team who worked really hard to get us even this this morning, so we appreciate what you guys do for us very much. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, and we will conclude at verse 12. Reading from the English Standard Version, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Word of God. I can think of no two more important questions to ask yourself and to have an answer for than these two questions. Who am I and what am I here for? Who am I and what am I here for? I mean, think about it. Those two questions are so very important to answer. I mean, without sufficient answers to those questions, we are doomed to wander our way through this life, guessing, experimenting, hoping, wishing, somehow to find purpose, meaning, and identity. And yet in this very passage this morning, Peter tells us who we are and why we're here. Because this passage is about the church, the identity of the church, and the mission of the church. This passage is fundamental to who we are, brothers and sisters. It doesn't get more basic than this. So I hope you're eager, as I am eager, to walk with you through this text this morning and answer four statements or questions about the church. Here's my outline. Who the church is, why the church is, 
what the church does and how the church does. Really simple. We want to see who the church is, why we are the church, how did that happen, what are we here for, and how do we best go about fulfilling our mission here on earth. So I'm going to have to do a real big flyover of this text. We've got a lot of verses to cover this morning, but I hope to hit the high points. So let's get right to it. Number one, who is the church? And I say who, and I choose that word very carefully, because the church is not this building. The church is a people. The church is not so much an event, although it is a gathering. It's not fundamentally defined as an event, as something you go to. It's something that you are. And Peter gives us no less than six metaphors, and I'm going to go through them very quickly, six metaphors of who the church is in verses 4 through 12. And I want to walk you through them one at a time. Here we go. Verse 5, he gives us the first metaphor of who the church is. The church is a spiritual temple. Did you see that in verse 5 where Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual temple. House. The church is a spiritual house, not a physical one. One writer said that, the, that God's architecture is biological. What God is building is a people. It's a people in whom God dwells. We are, as Peter describes, living stones in this spiritual temple that are being built up. The church is not an isolated group of Christians. The church is a deeply connected spiritual building that God is building. So the church is a spiritual temple. It's a people inhabited by the living God. Secondly, second metaphor. In verse 9, Peter says we are a chosen race. We are a new race of people, brothers and sisters, chosen by God. Our race is not based upon our ethnicity or our cultural background. What gives us our identity is not our skin color or our culture, but our chosenness. We are chosen. We don't know why. It wasn't because of our inherent difference from others or superior value or earning or merit. We should stand in awe. Tremble with joy, bow, accept, and seek to be faithful to the purpose for which we've been chosen. We are a chosen race, a new race of people, a people that has been chosen by God. Third metaphor, again, verse 9. We are a royal priesthood. Now, what is Peter getting at here? He says it again. In verse 5, when he says that we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So this idea of priesthood is very important to Peter. He mentions it twice in the span of a few verses. And the idea is, is that we have immediate access to God. Just as the Old Testament priests, in a special, unique way, had access into the very presence of God. We, as those chosen by God, as those in in whom he is inhabiting, as a spiritual temple, we have an exalted, active role in God's presence to serve him and minister to him. 
We have immediate access to God. Our lives are lived in service to him. So not only are we a people inhabited by God, but we are a people chosen by God and we're a people who have access to God. Fourth metaphor, holy nation. Again, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The idea is that we are a people set apart for God. Holiness in the Bible means separation unto God. We are not merely a part of this world anymore. We are a part of this world. But we are not merely a part of this world. We have been set apart for God. We exist for God and we've been made holy by Him. We're a holy nation. A people set apart for Him. We're also God's people. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation... A people for his own possession. We're a people that belongs to God. In the language of verse 10, we are God's people. We belong to him. We're doubly his. We're his by creation in that he made us. But we're also his by redemption in that he purchased us with the blood of Christ. We are the ones that God aims to spend eternity with. We are the ones among whom he will walk and reveal himself in personal fellowship forever. Stand in awe of that. In the language of Deuteronomy 32.9, we're his treasure. We're his prized possession. We're his inheritance. Or in the language of Deuteronomy 33 or Leviticus 9 or Isaiah 49, we are the ones that God bears on his shoulders, the one whom God carries in his arms, the one whom God holds in his hand, and the one ones that he, seat, he sits down at his feet. We're all over God. We're on his shoulders, we're in his hands, we're in his arms, we're at his feet. We belong to him. He wants us. Last metaphor, verse 11. We're sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you, Peter writes, as sojourners and exiles. We are a people who live for God. Our identity, our purpose, is not fundamentally about what this world gives us or what we can accomplish for ourselves while here. We are sojourners. We are transient residents. We live here. But we're not here forever, at least in the world in its present condition. Our citizenship is primarily in another country. In the language of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, 20 our citizenship is in heaven. We we are strangers here. Our home is with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, this life is a journey to our home. The ideas of sojourners and exiles convey the idea of living in a foreign country, but living alongside people to whom we do not fundamentally belong. We are foreign residents. And we live alongside people as fellow citizens and members of the human race. But in another sense, we are a redeemed people that do not belong here, but belong to God fundamentally. Now, let me just step back and say, when you think of church, do you think of that? 
Do you think of spiritual temple, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's people, sojourners and exiles, or do you think 1030 on Sunday? Because 1030 on Sunday is important. It's big time important. I'm not minimizing the importance of the gathering of God's people. This is huge. But this isn't it. This is not it. Now, what does all this language and all these metaphors make you think of? When you hear things like spiritual temple, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, your mind should be going, Old Testament. That sounds Old Testament to me. And you would be right. It's Old Testament. And specifically, it's Israel. So what in the world is Peter doing describing the church as Israel? Because the church is Israel. That's why. The church is the new Israel. I mean, how can it be more plain? Here's what Wayne Grudem writes. So in verses 4 to 10, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all of the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the Jerusalem temple because Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God is no longer descended from Aaron. It's descended from Jesus, from Christians who are now the true royal priesthood with access before God's throne. God's chosen people are no longer said to be those physically descended from Abraham, but those who are spiritually descended from Abraham, namely Christians, who are now the true chosen race. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel, for Christians are now God's true holy nation. The people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God, for Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, are God's people. They are those who have received mercy. Moreover, Peter takes these quotations from contexts which repeatedly warn that God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him, who reject the precious cornerstone which he has established. What more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God? And I agree with Grudem. We are God's people, the things which makes the Old Testament incredibly relevant to us. Because when we read the Old Testament, we read the way God feels truly about the church in his affection for Israel, in his choosing of Israel, in his loving of Israel, in his purpose for Israel. It's fulfilled in the coming of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. So that's who we are. We are the new Israel of God. But why? Why do we, why? How did that happen? This is the second question. Why is the church? Or how did the church become the church? And Peter tells us that as well. He gives us in the first four verses, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, the world's view of Jesus, God's view of Jesus, and Christians' view of Jesus. Because we become a part of the church. Here's how, if you want to know, how did the church fundamentally become the church? 
It became the church by God sending His Son to die, to be buried, to rise again for the purpose of gathering a new people of God. And the church becomes the church by, by seeing in Jesus the same thing that God sees in Jesus. And attaching to Jesus by faith. What does Peter say about the world's view of Jesus here? He says in verse 4, he describes Jesus as a living stone rejected by men. Most of the people who have lived on the face of this earth since the beginning of time right up to the present day, at least since the fall right up to the present day, have rejected God. And most of the people living when Jesus came stumbled over Him, tripped over Him, rejected Him, misunderstood Him, didn't get Him. And so it is today. Peter says that Jesus was a living stone rejected by men. And then in verse 7, Peter says, those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, We reject Him. We don't believe in Him. The world, fundamentally. And He becomes, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You say, people in our community, by and large, don't seem to reject Jesus. They kind of tend to like Jesus. And I would say, well, maybe, maybe they like Jesus, a certain kind of Jesus. But if you were to press them with the full biblical idea of who Jesus is as the Lord God, as the only Savior, as the King of their lives, as the Christ, and explained all that and understood that He is the only way to salvation, you accept Him or you go to hell, you follow Him as Lord, you bow before Him, or you're a goner. If you're to press that on people... They won't like that. Even in the Bible Belt, they won't like that. Sounds intolerant. Sounds exclusive. Sounds arrogant. But that's what Jesus is. That's who he said he was. And that's when people heard him and heard him say those kinds of things, they rejected him. They didn't believe him. They stumbled over what he said. They found it offensive. But what's God's view of Jesus? Peter tells us, verse 4, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's God's estimate of Jesus Christ. God the Father says, I chose Him for a mission. I sent Him to earth. He's precious to me. I love Him. I love everything about Him. Verse 6, Again, Peter quoting the Old Testament, Behold, I, God, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. He says it twice. Chosen and precious. That's God's view of Jesus. What's the Christian view of Jesus? Christians don't reject Him, don't not believe Him, don't trip over Him. 
don't find Jesus offensive. They see him as chosen and precious. They see Jesus as God's remedy for this world's brokenness. And our sinfulness. So, God's view, or Christian's view of Jesus, is we come to him. Verse 4. As you come to him. And that's not just talking about an initial walking of an aisle, signing of a card, being baptized when you're six, and living like Jesus doesn't exist the rest of the time. What Peter's saying here is that Christians are those who come to him initially and keep on coming to Jesus. It's a continual, ongoing, coming to Jesus for sustenance and life. Take anything from me but Jesus. That's the Christian's idea. That's the Christian's identity. That's who the Christian is. They come and they live off of Jesus. And if you don't relate to Jesus that way, you may not be a Christian. If you're not coming to Him continually in prayer, in worship, in communion, in fellowship... Do you talk to Jesus? Do you do it a lot? Do you relate to Him? Does He mean something to you? That's the Christian. We come to Him continually, continually. We also believe in Him. Verse 6. But the honor is for you who believe. You who believe. Verse 6. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. We believe in Him. We hear what he says and we believe it. We receive it. We don't question him. We don't fight him on it. We want to understand what he's saying to us. And we know that the only way that we're going to be made acceptable to God is through what he did. On the cross for our sins. We don't earn God's love. We don't earn God's favor. We come to God through Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says in verse 5. You're a spiritual house to offer spiritual fact. Sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We know that if there is no through Jesus Christ, there is no acceptable to God. Period. If there is no Jesus, there is no acceptance with God. That's the bottom line. That's what Peter says. The only way we can offer anything to God is through Jesus Christ. Because it's His work that purifies us. That cleanses the defilement away. Do you notice what Peter says? He calls Jesus a living stone in verse 4. He says, you come to him a living stone, referring to Jesus as the resurrected one, the one who is alive, the one who has life in himself. And then he says in verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. He calls us living stones too. So how can he call Jesus a living stone and call us a living stones? Because we're in union with Jesus by faith. That's the church. And notice how Jesus is described here. He's described as a cornerstone. Verse 6, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? Literal translation, head of the corner. Now, what's a cornerstone? A cornerstone in a building is the most important foundation stone in the structure. You get the cornerstone wrong, you get the whole building wrong. The cornerstone breaks, the building falls down. The cornerstone shakes, the whole walls shake. It is the most important stone in the building. We don't 
you know, we don't really think about this a lot today because most of our buildings don't last hundreds of thousands, even thousands of years because they're not made in a sense the way they were back then with these heavy, durable, strong, thick stones. And the idea here is that Jesus is cornerstone. Jesus is the most important brick stone in the building God is building. Without him, the building doesn't exist. It falls apart. And Christians are those that throw their whole weight on that cornerstone. If he falls, I'm done. If he breaks, I'm done. We rest on Jesus as cornerstone. We throw our weight on him. And we know that in doing so, we will never be put to shame. We will never look back and regret that. Because he is the strongest strongest thing, the strongest foundation we can build our lives on. Because God said he's chosen and precious. And if we believe what God said and God's assessment of Jesus, we're going to trust that assessment. And we're going to lean our weight on that. But if you don't believe God's assessment of Jesus, you'll walk away from him. You'll reject him. And your life will be broken. And you will be shaky. And your walls will come falling down. You might live a great life here without Jesus. Totally. Great life. Walls not shake at all. You might not even get cancer. You just live on. Just doing great. But one day, the wall's coming down. The wall is coming down because there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. And Matthew 21, 44 will be your testimony. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but the one, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So Christians view Jesus as cornerstone. We say, on Jesus' life and on Jesus' death, I trust and stake my whole eternity and nothing else. That's a Christian. We stake everything on Cornerstone Jesus. Now, the question then becomes, I still haven't answered why. I kind of answered why a little bit. I said, we're the church because we're in union with Christ by faith. We're living stones attached to the living stone. We're those who come to Jesus continually, who believe in him, who know that we're only made acceptable through him, who rest our entire lives on him, our future, our eternity, our safety, our security is all on him. So the question becomes, how do we get that view of Jesus? Was it because we're smarter than other people? Is that what Peter says? If so, he's praising the wrong person. No, he says no less than three times the reason you saw this Jesus the way you did was by the mercy of God. He says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. I don't have time to go into the fact, some of your translation may say, and some of you have heard sermons preached on this text, to you who believe he is precious. And you've heard sermons opened up on that text talking about Jesus is precious to the believer, isn't he? That's just not right. 
It's a right doctrine, but it's not what the text is saying. The text in the best Greek and the, be, the best study that I, could have, that I could do, the way the ESV translated it and several other modern translations give it, is the honor is for you who believe. The idea is the privilege, the status that's been conveyed upon you through faith in, is, is through faith in Christ alone. It's not because you're better. It's because you're attached to Jesus. The honor, the position, the privilege that you have is through faith in Jesus. Both your present status and your future final vindication at the last day is through Jesus. It's because you believe. And the only reason you believe is according to verse 10, because you've received mercy. See that in verse 10? Once you were not a people... But now you're God's people. So how do we become God's people? Well, once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've received mercy. God withheld from you what you deserved, which is to see Jesus and stumble over him. He gave you eyes to see the Christ as God sees the Christ. If you see Jesus the way God sees Jesus, that's God's gift to you. His undeserved free gift to you. And we should be amazed. We should be amazed. He has called us, summoned us, according to verse 9, out of darkness into light. He called us. It wasn't because we called on Him. We did call on Him, of course, but our call on Him was initiated by His call of us. Our pleading for God to have mercy on us was because God was having mercy on us. That's why we cried, God have mercy on me, because God was having mercy on you. Nobody cries, God have mercy on me, unless God is having mercy on them. If they want the mercy that God is offering. So it's by the mercy of God. Verse 8 says that others stumble because they disobey the word. We receive the word. As we saw last week, we purified our souls through obedience to the truth. We were born again. But that wasn't because of us. That was because of God's kindness, His mercy. You know what we should be amazed at? We should not be amazed that God chooses some and not others. We should be amazed that God chooses any. Because what made us God's possession is the exact same thing He told Israel in the Old Testament. I didn't choose you because you were so great. I chose you to make my name great. I didn't choose you among the nations because you have some unique thing in you, some thing that draws me to you. I chose you because I wanted to. I chose you because I love you. And then you say, God, why do you love me? Because I love you. I just do. It's who he is, not who we are. So, church of Jesus Christ, we are the church of Jesus Christ because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. And the grace of God and the mercy of God alone. We have no boasting. That's why we can worship. That's why we're a church that sings. That's why we're a church that praises God. 
If we did our salvation, why are we here? What's this all about? This noise. I mean, you're intelligent. You made a good decision. You saw a sinful path and you said, no, I'm not going to have that. I'd rather live a righteous life. Then we should put you up here on stage and sing to you. Good for you. No. Good for God. Grace of God. Mercy of God. Love of God. Steadfast patience and infinite kindness of God. That's why the church exists. If gatherings are happening like this all over the place. Right now. And if they are gatherings of the redeemed. Singing to God in praise and thanksgiving for how he has treated them. Contrary to what they deserve. That's exactly why God redeemed them. Let's go on to our third point. What the church does. What the church does. Okay, so... Church is this people of God, saved by God's grace. What are we left here to do? Why do we exist? That's our identity. Our identity is we belong to God. We've been saved by God. We've been chosen by God. We've been ransomed by God. We've been spared from God, by God. Now, what are we left here to do? Well, last week we saw that one of the things we're left here to do is love one another deeply from the heart. And I don't want to skip over that. I want to remind you. I want to press that home. That one of the things we're left here to do is love each other passionately, to care for each other. But Peter gives us the other two. We're left here, biblically, for three main reasons. The church exists for three purposes. To love God, to love each other, and to love the lost. To love our neighbor. We love God, we love brother, we love neighbor. And last week, we saw... Love brother. And this week, Peter's going to tell us two other things. Love God and love neighbor. That's why we're here. So let's see those two. First of all, we're here to worship. We're here to worship. And that is love God. Offer spiritual sacrifices. Chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To what? Offer spiritual sacrifices sacrifices. That's why God says we're here. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, he's pulling the temple language, and in the temple in the Old Testament was where sacrifice took place. And he's saying, but you offer spiritual sacrifices. You're not offering physical ones, which means we're not going to come up here and kill a lamb. We're not going to go slay a bull or a goat or a pigeon, if that's all you can afford. We're going to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what does the New Testament tell us spiritual sacrifices are? Well, let me turn you there real fast. All right? There are four things, four types of spiritual sacrifices that are mentioned in the New Testament, and we'll just have to go there very quickly. Romans 12. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, if you just want to just listen, that's fine too. I'm going to try to turn to these quickly. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There you go. We've been treated with mercy. There it is again. How are we supposed to respond to God's mercy that we've received? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There it is. So our body, our body is offered as a sacrifice to God. It's offered in service to God. So lest we think the goal of God is just to get us here to sing on Sunday... 
That's not the goal. That's part of the goal. We're going to see that in a minute. That's part of the goal. But the goal is a whole life of worship. The goal is God comes in you, consumes you, owns your body. You're a living sacrifice for him the rest of your life. Your life is to yield up things that make God like what he's smelling. Which is why, like last week, we're to get rid of all that other stuff that's anti-love. Because that stinks to God. So, our body is offered in service to God. Also, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. Paul describes himself. He says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So our lives that are devoted to the good of others, that are poured out in love for other people, is a sacrifice to God. It's a spiritual sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. It's not just your body being possessed in holiness, not being conformed to the world. That is a spiritual sacrifice. Peter already told us, be holy because I'm holy. But another sacrifice is love one another deeply from the heart. Pursue love. Lay your life down. Pour your life out for other people. That's a spiritual sacrifice to God as well. Paul models it for us. Ephesians 5. Walk in love, which is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love is an offering. It's got to be, right? It's the reason why we were redeemed. It has to smell good to God. But also, our money offered for the spread of the gospel is a spiritual sacrifice. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, Paul says, because the Philippian church has given to him for the spread of the gospel. He's going to use that money to help other churches. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When we give our money, when we tithe, brothers and sisters, when you give above and beyond, when you pour your change in the mash can, it smells good to God. It smells really good because it's about the spread of the gospel. It's about relieving the poor. It's about serving the cause of Christ. So let me just say faithfully, I love you. I honestly, in this church... Don't know specifically what you give. I don't. And I prefer it that way. But, but let me just say, are you, are you responding to this mercy and grace that you've received, brother and sis, brothers and sisters, by giving everything as a spiritual sacrifice to God? Everything that God says is a spiritual sacrifice, are you giving that to Him? Or are you kind of like choosing what you want to be a spiritual sacrifice? Are you saying, okay, I'll live a holy life, but I don't want to give my money. And I certainly don't want to love other people. We can't do that. Or I'll I'll love other people, but I'm not giving up porn. Or I'm I'm not going to give up my gossip. Or I'm going to love other people. I'm going to show interest in them. I'm going to care about them. I'm going to live a a holy life. But but that 10% thing... Just, I don't want to give my money to God. And listen, it's not an issue for me. I want you so much to be the happiest Christian you can possibly be. I want you to be that way. 
So I'm going to give you what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you what God wants from you. He wants spiritual sacrifices. And spiritual sacrifices is a holy life, a loving life, and a giving life. It's a giving life. It's a generous life. It's not a stingy life. And finally, Hebrews chapter 13, the final spiritual sacrifice. It's a worshiping life. It's a singing life. So spiritual sacrifices are holiness, love, giving, and singing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the author of the Hebrews kind of folds those two together. Love each other, share, but fruit of the lips, sing, sing to him. Acknowledge his name. So if, if we had to step back here and we say, okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says the goal, one of the goals, one of the missions of the church is to worship God, offer spiritual sacrifices to him. What does that mean? I would say if we take all the biblical data, probably primarily he has in view the offering of praise to God. But let me tell you this. God does not want your offering of praise to him if you are stingy, unloving, and unholy. He wants a holy, loving, giving, singing, redeemed sinner who struggles to love and sing and give and be holy, but nevertheless is resolved by the grace of God to be that. That's what we want. So I don't say that as a, as a, to condemn anybody. I say it to give you information about what the Bible says a spiritual sacrifice is and call you to give it. Because in calling you to give it, let me, see, let me say this. If you're unwilling to do any of that, if you're unwilling to be holy, to be loving, to be giving, or to, to sing or to worship, is Jesus really your cornerstone or is something else your cornerstone? Is Jesus really what you've thrown all your weight on? what you're seeking to hold up your life, or is it something else? Because chances are, you think that if you give up whatever, you're, whatever God's putting his finger on right now in your life, it's because you don't believe that Jesus is going to come through in that area. You really think you're going to be put to shame. You'll be unfulfilled. You'll be disappointed. If I have to give up that area of unholiness... If I have to love that person, if I've got to give that money, or if I've got to, got to, got to, got to, wrong perspective. Let's flip that. Mercy of God pursued you, loves you, bought you, union with Christ. Nothing's going to happen. Going to heaven. Spiritual sacrifice to God my whole life. And if not, reevaluate the cornerstone. Think about where you're resting your weight. What are you looking to? What's, what are you really looking to to be your Savior other than Jesus? Because, brothers and sisters, we have a tendency to do that. Looking to other things to be our Savior rather than Jesus. Say, I'm not interested in one of those things. How can you not be interested in one of those things? How can you not be interested in the reason that God saved you? If He saved you, He's given you a heart to do that. 
He's given you a giving heart. He's given you a loving heart. He's given you a holy heart. And everything that you do against that, you feel like it's against your new nature. Because it is. You're not that person anymore. You're not an ungiving, unloving, unholy, unworshipful person. You're this person. Grow into it. That's what grow up into your salvation, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's what Peter wants. But why else are we here? We're here to love each other deeply. We're here to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And we're here to declare God's excellencies. That's what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9. You're all of this, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. To declare God's excellencies. Now, some people take this to be worship. And other people take it to be evangelism. And it's like split right down the middle. And I'm saying, why you got to choose? Peter's making a transition here from worship to evangelism. It's right in the middle of the transition. Verses 5 through 8 are all about worship, offering spiritual sacrifices to God as the new temple of God. And then he says that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he's going to get into 11 and 12 and talk about how we relate to the outside world. He's got both on his mind. He's not trying to piecemeal the Christian life into these little compartments. A worshiping life is an evangelizing life. A life that declares God's excellencies here wants to declare them out there. Because God hasn't changed once we walk in here. So declaring the word only shows up here in the New Testament. To my knowledge, this is the only use of it. It's used a lot of times in the Old Testament to mean to tell out, to make widely known, to advertise. The picture is you've got a message that needs to be proclaimed to those outside concerning what takes place inside. That's declaration. Let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what God is like. Let me tell you the excellencies. And the you here is plural. You are a chosen race to declare the excellencies of him. So if you've been, mer- if you've been mercied by God, if you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, if you are part of the chosen race, if you are part of the holy nation, if you are part of God's people, if you're a part of the spiritual temple, declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are all about the mission of declaring God's excellencies. Here and there. In our work, in our home, in our community, to the nations. Declaring the excellencies of him. The entire membership of the church, those who have been called out of darkness, the message doesn't center on us. The message centers on the greatness of God who saved us. Now, finally, and very quickly, how do we do this? How do we hold forth? How do we offer ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice? How do we declare his excellencies? How do we love one another deeply? Well, in verses 11 and 12, Peter gives us the how. How do we, as a church, maintain our worship and our witness in the context of an unbelieving world? Because he calls us to do both. He calls us to worship him and love him and to love our neighbor. He says in verse 11 and 12, be deeply distinct from the world and do good to the world. At the same time. He says be different. 
Live a holy life, but don't be sectarian. He says our character must be distinctly different. There must be an abstaining from the passions of the flesh. He says that in verse 11. And we must keep our conduct honorable. There's the two phrases. We got to be different. We belong to God now. But he says that doesn't mean you remove yourself from the world. Because he says that we're to do it, and according to verse 12, among the Gentiles. We're to do it among the Gentiles so that they see it. So Christians are to live in the world, but different from it. Our character being distinctly different while living among the Gentiles that they may see our good deeds. And the early church did this so well. The early Christians were distinct from the world. They forbid abortion. They said no sex outside of marriage. They condemned same-sex practices. They insisted on no religious syncretism. That is the blending of Christianity with some other belief system. And they insisted that Jesus is the only way in the early church. And they got persecuted for that. But they were also those who rejected the activities of the Colosseum, who didn't take part in Caesar's conquest and his adverse militarism. They were those who empowered women rather than belittled them. They were those who celebrated class differences and races in the church. And they served the poor. Sounds liberal, doesn't it? And they didn't fit in either category. The conservatives looked at them and said, but look at what they do to care for people. And the liberals looked at them and said, look at what they believe. Good grief. They didn't fit. They were a third way, an alternate society. They didn't fit within Western individualistic relativism. And they didn't fit in terms of Eastern traditional hierarchical liberalism. They didn't fit in those categories. They didn't fit in any kind of categories the world would try to put them in. Because they didn't assimilate and become popular. And they didn't withdraw and become weird. They didn't do either of those. They assimilated, or sorry, they didn't assimilate and they got rejected. And they didn't withdraw and they got rejected. See, both of those ways... If we assimilate, if we lose our distinctiveness, if we lose our Christian values, if we behave like the people around us, we don't suffer and we don't have any impact. Neither do we have any impact if we withdraw in a holy huddle and behave weirdly and do Christian things with Christian people. Neither. But if you don't assimilate and you don't attack or withdraw, You will be rejected and you will be recognized. People will hate you and they will get saved. Because that's what Peter says will happen. He says that people are going to hate us. We'll get criticized. In his language, they will speak against us as evildoers. They'll say, call us names. They'll misunderstand our motives. But they will also, some of them, will get converted. Notice what he says. They will glorify God on the day of visitation. That is, they will be saved and glorify God on the day when Christ returns. 
Some will reject. Some will receive Christ. And the mark of faithfulness as a church is both of those things happening regularly. People seeing the claims of Christ and walking away. And people seeing the claims of Christ and receiving Christ. That's how we know we're maintaining the balance we ought to maintain. That's the grid that we should be thinking through in terms of faithfulness. Not assimilating, not attacking, but being different and coming alongside and serving and loving. And as a result, we will bear witness. We will bear witness. Now, why do I say this glorified God on the day of visitation is like them being converted? It's because of what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 2. When he's talking about unbelieving husbands and the conduct of their wives. People of God, you know this. What does Peter call the, the, the believing wife to do to our unbelieving husband? To serve him, to love him, to care for him, to show him good deeds in hopes that he will be saved. And that's exactly what Peter calls the church to do. To come alongside them, to love them and serve them. To be respectful, to conduct ourselves wisely with love in hopes that they will be one without a word by the conduct that they see. Because I'll tell you, people get saved when they see a distinct life that is deeply loving of those who are very different from them because that is only possible supernaturally. Which is why no one's going to get saved by picketing. Angry, bigoted picketing. And no one's going to get saved by loosey-goosey, unholy Christianity. It's only those two things together that the church will be the church that Christ redeemed. And let's pray that we will ever increasingly be built up into that kind of spiritual grace. Let's pray. Father, we marvel again this morning at the grace that we have received. Oh, how great the love that we have been shown. Children of God, saved by your mercy, called out of this world, back into this world, to live distinctly and lovingly for your glory. Build us up, Lord, as a spiritual house to offer purer and purer spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Receive this blessing, receive this benediction from the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.